Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Native American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Annabella Breck, and today we'll be talking to Alex Hidalgo about his new book, Trail of Footprints, a history of indigenous maps from viceregal Mexico. Alex Hidalgo, welcome to the show. Hi, Annabelle. Uh, Thank you for having me. Alex, I wonder if you could kick things off today by telling us a bit about yourself. Uh, Sure. Uh, I'm a native of the city of Tijuana, Baja California, in northern Mexico, just right across the border from San Diego. Um, I earned my PhD from the University of Arizona in 2013, and I moved to Fort Worth, Texas, where I've been teaching ever since. I specialize in the history of colonial Mexico and Latin America. Uh, with an interest in the early modern world, in the history of knowledge, and the history of maps and visual culture. And I've been curating uh, over the past few years a collection of rare books at TCU printed in the Americas up to about 1800. Great. Thank you, Alex. And how did you come to write Trail of Footprints? When I graduated and I earned my master's from San Diego State in 2006. I was headed to Tucson to pursue my PhD. And my advisor at San Diego State, an anthropologist named Ramona Perez, invited me to work on the rehabilitation of a local archive in a town called Atzompa, right outside the city of Oaxaca. When we met with authorities in the summer, right before I moved to Tucson, um, they showed us a number of records that they kept in their archive so that we would have an idea of what kinds of things uh, our team could expect when we went there over the summers to start with the rehabilitation of the archive. And one of the things that they showed us was this gorgeous painted map that the mayor of the town pulled out of a drawer from his desk and then proceeded to unfold in front of us. Uh, It was just the most spectacular thing I had ever seen. I couldn't believe that it was kept in a drawer. Um, It was colorful. It was vibrant. It was also... um, unique and strange, at least to my eyes, something that I had not been accustomed to. And so I took images of that record and I took them with me to Tucson where I started my my doctoral work. And in the first semester in the program, um, I brought the document to my advisor and asked if he would be okay if I pursued a research uh, paper, a seminar paper on the map and on its context. I wanted to learn more about when it was made, how it was made, who made it. I had all of these basic questions, and I 
noticed that people seemed interested in the map itself. Uh, they wanted to know more like me, and so I pursued that, and I've been with the project ever since. In your introduction, you describe your source base, specifically 60 maps made in Oaxaca between the late 1500s and mid-1700s, as well as your methods. How do you go about deciphering the meaning of and information embedded in indigenous maps? Great question. Um, after the initial foray into the seminar paper, I started to see that there were not just a handful of maps, but hundreds of maps of indigenous origin that were made between the middle uh, and third part of the 16th century, all the way up to the 18th century. Um, and so I started collating and bringing these pieces together. And one of the things that I noticed was that no map was the same. Uh, even copies had very distinct variations. And so I needed to devise a structure of how to think about the maps and how to read them precisely, you know, coming back to your question. So I developed um, a kind of strategy uh, based on what I see as three layers within the maps themselves. In the first instance, there is this, uh, the material condition. And so this includes uh, elements such as paper and ink, uh, but also brushes, uh, plants used to make pigments, etc. And I wanted to learn more about um, how maps were made and how they came to life. Then I, I, I saw in the maps a second element, the pictorial element, that is all the, the ways that painters illustrated the natural environment, the way that they uh, depicted uh, astral uh, bodies, including the sun, the moon, the stars, uh, land, physical structures, infrastructure, and so forth. Uh, and then lastly, there was another element that was very much a part of the maps, but also seemed to be a little bit outside of them. Uh, and that is the alphabetic glosses that inform the content of the map itself. And that seemed to be an additional layer of information that was incredibly important to figure out where these maps had been and how they had traveled. In chapter one, we're introduced to the diversity of Oaxacan interests who, while embroiled in a 1680s land dispute, employ maps and map making as a legal tool. How and why are indigenous maps used to mediate this and other disputes? Yes. Uh, so, in this first chapter, what I try to do is to contextualize the social conditions of the region itself. And from the end of the 16th century to the middle of the 18th century, land acquires great value and is a prize commodity, especially in that later period of the 17th century when this case that I examined takes place. 
the case is about um, not a very large parcel of land, but a highly contested one, 10 acres of land um, disputed between a Mishtec town called Santa Cruz Jojocotlan and several successive Spanish owners who claim this portion of land. And over the course of about 50 years, there are various disputes where this land is contested. And for the first 40 years, Jojocotlan is able to control the land to make arguments based on very little evidence, but mostly on the fact that they, according to them and their witnesses, had possessed the land since time immemorial. Uh, In this case, meaning at least until the evidence was available and people who were able to testify about ownership could do so. But there was a shift at a certain point in the 1680s when new legislation was introduced that required that individuals also present written title uh, for their properties. And so Jojocotlan didn't have that. And authority over the acres of land passed to the Spanish landholders. But Jojocotlan disputed the finding, and one of the things that they did in order to try to legitimate their claim was that they produced a very old map. The map was in such dire conditions, it was tattered and frailed according to the sources. And so the official commissioned a new map, a copy to replace the old one and a copy that could circulate in the courts and so forth and be included in the docket uh, so that lawyers uh, could review it and make sure that the property in contention was in fact uh, divided accordingly. And this just generated so much conflict between the parties. The introduction of the map was supposed to be tied to this idea of time immemorial, to the fact that Jocotlan has possessed that piece of land for so long, but it didn't even actually specify the property in question. It was tied mostly to the collective notion of what Jocotlan had controlled since before the arrival of Spaniards. And so the case unfolds uh, very dramatically in Oaxaca, in Mexico City, as the map is moving back and forth, and different witnesses come to legitimate both the map, uh, but also the possession of the Spanish landholder. I won't give away the ending of the case, suffice it to say, it is uh, in some ways unexpected. In chapter two, you focus on the indigenous painters who materialize ideas about space into documented form. What kinds of image-making skills were unique to these indigenous painters' social, political, and cultural positions, and how did these positions translate onto the maps they helped to produce? 
Well, what a great question. Um, this chapter is about the social lives of painters, about what shapes them and allows them to facilitate the representation and description of land. And we're talking about here primarily about uh, men of indigenous or uh, of indigenous origin and elite status, uh, primarily Mixtecs, Zapotecs, and Nawas, um, who had access to material wealth, who had access to land, who had access to institutions, most notably the Catholic Church, but also the courts, and who had access to records of various kinds and material culture. So, for example, uh, it would not have been uncommon for indigenous men who were painters to have family archives where they stored pictorial records of various kinds. But it also wouldn't be uncommon for them to have books of the religious nature printed in the Americas or in Spain having to do with uh, different uh, issues of ritual, Catholic ritual, uh, confession, sacraments, and so forth. And so these individuals have this access to the most important ideological and educational tools that are taking place after the arrival of Spaniards in the 16th century. In particular, they have access to alphabetic writing, they have access to prints, they have access to painting and other religious artifacts. Um, one specific example from this chapter that I find incredibly compelling is the case of one painter. Uh, we don't have this person's name. I call him the painter of the Huantepec because he painted in this coastal region in uh, the southern portion of Oaxaca near the isthmus of the Huantepec. And he painted for nearly a period of 20 years. He painted for a number of different patrons, including provincial bureaucrats, but also various landholders, many of them of Spanish origin. And what's interesting about his example is that one can see in the maps that he paints over this 20-year period how knowledge is incorporated into the map-making process, but also how the patrons' demands begin to shape what painters include in the maps themselves. And so, for instance, in the earlier maps that this person paints, one sees elements of pre-Columbian uh, pre iconography, the presence of feet, the presence of tepet uh, signs, which are um, these glyphs that represent place. Uh, they designate townships. These are very specific elements tied to pre-Columbian visual canons that this painter is using very clearly to 
communicate his message. But as time moves forward, many of those elements gradually disappear from his maps until the very last map that we have access to, dated, I believe, 1601 or somewhere around there, has lost all of the elements of the pre-Columbian canon. We only know that it's his map because he has a very distinct way of painting churches. Churches were used to symbolize towns. They replaced these pre-Columbian elements in many ways uh, and became the principal uh, visual element of a map. We saw a church. It typically represented a town. And he's got a very specific way of doing that, that we can trace it and we could see this process uh, evolving over the course of about 20 years. Chapter 3 takes us even deeper into the physical process of map making, focusing on the materials, pigments, ink, paper, that enabled indigenous painters to effectively translate spatial relationships. How are European and indigenous methods, materials, and forms of knowledge utilized, integrated, and transformed in the physical process of map making, and how does this evolve over time? In many ways, this is the book's most ambitious chapter, um, in part because I'm bringing or I'm attempting to bring different forms of knowledge to bear in different ways for a modern public who has an impression of the decay of indigenous knowledge virtually uh, immediately after contact. And in another way, because I'm speaking about elements that are found in maps, typically speaking, but which for which I don't necessarily have uh, or ran laboratory or chemical tests. What I found, however, was a rich inventory of plants and their properties, including methods to make specific pigments used in the art of painting, associated specifically with indigenous peoples in central and southern Mexico. Uh, and we also have knowledge about recipes and other forms of craft making coming out of the Iberian world. For me, this was a key question in thinking about the maps themselves, in part because the maps are so visually striking. The colors that are used are so vibrant and in many ways, they maintain their vibrancy over 500 years of time uh, and often under very careless um, archiving circumstances. And so in thinking about the material aspects of maps, uh, the way that paper was made and used, the way that Plants were transformed into various materials used to give color to the maps themselves. The way that 
ink helped to legitimize part of the content of the map. What I want to propose in this chapter is that, in fact, it's indigenous knowledge that is leading the effort to represent the natural world in the Iberian part of Mexico during this time. And this happens in several ways. Um, we find through the work of people like Francisco Hernández, who is traveling through New Spain and is cataloging plants and is working through various epidemics, including the very devastating Cocolitzli epidemic that hit New Spain in the 1560s and 70s. And he's learning from indigenous informants, some of whom he coerces, some of whom work voluntarily with him, about a range of botanica that had informed medicinal practices and pictorial practices across Mesoamerica for centuries. And it's these processes that inform the fabrication of pigments used to make maps. I've used the studies of other pictorial records from the time period and from the region, uh, from scholars who have run chemical tests and analyses of pictorial records, to give myself a range of options of the types of materials that could have been found. I think, in part, this is also a very unique way to think about maps because part of the knowledge that was associated with plants continued but was not necessarily documented by Spaniards after the 17th century, at least not in a system, uh, systematized way as Francisco Hernández had done, but it continued to move very much in the subtext of indigenous communities. And this is perhaps one of the most consistent qualities of maps over time. Uh, if we, and they, or rather, if, if we see maps, they lose a lot of their iconography associated with pre-Columbian pictorial practices when we move into the late 17th and 18th century. But one thing that is not lost um, and retains much of its earlier consistency are the materials that are used to make the maps themselves. Producing a quote-unquote legitimate map entailed walking a fine line between the skills and interests of indigenous painters and the demands and guidelines of Spanish officials. Chapter 4 details this precarious process of certification and authentication. In what ways do both Spanish officials and indigenous map makers maneuver this conundrum of authenticity? Yes, uh, this Chapter is set against a vast network 
of provincial bureaucrats, lawyers, notaries, judges, translators of indigenous and Spanish origin that populated the region's lettered city, right? The concept Angel Rama brings about uh, to describe the manuscript culture that serves to undergird Spanish colonialism in the Americas. And one of the questions or one of the things that I noticed when I prepared and researched for my discussion on maps was that there is an impression that even though indigenous people made maps to litigate issues related to land, uh, in particular land disputes, property rights, petitions for specific parcels of land, infrastructure projects, that there was an idea that once they hit the Spanish courts, they lost value because officials could not read them and could not interpret them. Therefore, the documents were useless. Or perhaps that's maybe being a little bit too strong, but at least were not very useful. But the thing that I kept coming back to was that I saw that maps continued to be commissioned and that they continued to circulate and that in fact there was all this writing on the maps that indicated that people had read and viewed them, sometimes very intensely. And what I argue in this chapter is that in fact um, it's very much, or maps represent perhaps the most scrutinized form of evidence in the legal courts during the colonial period, in part because they are not alphabetic records, they are pictorial records, in part because they are made by indigenous people and that carries certain connotations, and in part because they needed to be understood because they were often heavily used over generations. And so my conclusion is that officials apply what I'm very loosely describing as a concept of sameness. They want to make all the maps look the same and conform to their regulations and the maps don't want to play nice because they're very different, because each painter has his own kind of set of skills that varies according to region and access to resources. But officials can, in fact, make very specific requests about what they need in a map. And they do. And so there is this communication between both the Spanish authorities who often commission and inspect the maps and 
the indigenous painters who actually execute the map so that they can enter into the legal record. And what we see is a lot of notarial language. We see annotations that identify rivers, mountains, parcels of land, boundaries, natural boundaries of different kinds, ranches. We see them identifying specific sites that are under contention or that are being petitioned, sometimes in very simple ways with a sort of X marks, marks the spot moment. Aquí es el sitio. The site is here, right? And it forces the viewer to go to that particular portion of the map. And what they've done is, just in case you cannot understand the visual element, they write a textual one as well so that it's clear for anyone who is reading the map as it moves through the network of manuscripts uh, that we have already done part of the work, we've annotated it, and now all you need to do is follow these steps. And in the end, officials certify it with a nice big uh, signature uh, that dotted either the front or the back of the maps, indicating that it had been legally entered into the record and that it formed part of a docket. That also represents a very important portion of how we need to understand these maps, again, because they're thought to have very little value. But in fact, it's the Spanish officials in their efforts to authenticate the maps that give them the legal value that they need in order to be used for that particular moment, but also when they're used 50, 60, or even sometimes 150 years later to litigate other cases. Lawyers always point to the fact that documents had been, and maps in particular, had been inspected and authenticated. And I think that that is uh, one of the most important lessons to take away from this. The planning, creation, and legal application of these maps was just the start of their long lives as indicators of space, information, and other features of Viceregal Oaxaca. Your epilogue traces the afterlives of these maps, focusing specifically on the plight of one mid-18th century historian who struggled to locate them. How do the value of these maps change over time, and what does their sustained relevancy tell us about the kinds of information embedded within them? As I was preparing the manuscript and I had arrived to Fort Worth, I visited the Benson Latin American Collection in Austin, uh, one of the largest collections for the study of colonial Latin America, colonial Mexico in specific. Um, and it, it includes a, a large collection of maps produced uh, in the 16th century called the Relaciones Geográficas, a survey of geography, land, and culture. But it also includes an assortment of other records associated with pre-Columbian manuscripts. A 
popular theme, I later found out, especially during the 18th century. One of the things that I found, in part because there was a, an indication that there were some maps involved, was this case against an Italian aristocrat who traveled to New Spain in the 1730s, who collected items related to the apparition of the Virgin of Guadalupe, but also Mesoamerican documents. I looked at the case, and what I found was, as you mentioned, the plight of this Italian who brought together the most impressive collection of records associated with the early contact period in Mexico. Calendar wheels, codices, tribute records, maps of various kinds and sizes, chronicles written by Spaniards and indigenous authors, histories, religious treatises, various engravings and illustrations, personal accounts, letters. He had it all. This was an incredibly impressive collection that he assembled in part by aligning himself with a Zapotec cacique, that is a native lord who functioned as a translator in the courts in Mexico City. Boturini, the name of this gentleman, Lorenzo Boturini, um, proceeded to engage in a systematic collecting campaign that relied on letter writing, relied on ingratiating himself with different notables in the city, including intellectuals and some bureaucrats who also uh, were inclined to intellectual activities, prelates, indigenous nobles, because he wanted to access sources. His idea was to write a history of the region. He argued that no one up to that point had written an effective history using primary sources. He was wrong, but the argument at that moment was compelling. And so people seemed also to want to help him, and he amassed this wonderful collection of records. In the process, he also angered the new viceroy, who did not like him, and ordered an investigation into Boturini and his activities in the New World. Among other things, he wanted to produce a crown, a real physical crown encrusted with various gems that would serve as an offering for the Virgin of Guadalupe, who was seen at that moment to be the patron of 
this terrible disease that it wiped through in the 18th century. And she was seen as the patron who had brought the city of Mexico out of that. And in gratitude, he wanted to do these things. So on the one hand, he has his intellectual project that he wants to pursue. On the other hand, he's pursuing this other personal project to crown the Virgin. And that angers some authorities who begin to investigate his dealings in Mexico City. It seems that Boturini was operating mostly on the up and up, but his travels to New Spain had been without permission. That is, without a form of uh, travel documents required in order to embark to the Indies. And so that was enough to arrest him. And in the process, to sequester and catalog the manuscripts and pictorial records that he had. Coming back to the question, what is it uh, that we see changing in, uh, over time for these maps? And one of the things is they become historical documents. They become collectible items for antiquarians who use them to think about the culture of Mesoamerica prior and right around the time of contact and use them to think about the region's past. That's the context of the epilogue. I think perhaps the, the more substantive element uh, that undergirds that particular portion and what it, how it comes back to the book as a whole is the way that maps are traveling and circulating over time, but that they continue also to be read and analyzed. In Boturini's case in the 18th century, this shifts, however, where maps are typically authenticated by authorities to function as legal documents, for Boturini, they become historical records that need to be analyzed and classified in a different way. And so it's the work of both Boturini and also uh, the Zapotec Lord that generates a new way to think about Mesoamerican pictorial records. They pay attention to language. They pay attention to material condition. They pay attention to year of production. They pay attention to the contents of the items themselves. For an early modern inventory, this is a highly intelligent and descriptive annotation of a collection that gradually was disassembled after Boturini's unfortunate expulsion from New Spain in the 1740s. Authorities did not release the collection to Boturini when they released him. In fact, they kept it uh, in the view of historian Jorge Cañizares' Guerra, 
as a way to protect elements that had been produced in New Spain, and that at least from the perspective of certain custodians in New Spain should remain in the Viceroyalty and should not leave the country. And so we see that in Boturini's case, all of these elements of notarial culture that had served to identify maps in the past come to bear under a different context in the 18th century. In fact, the Zapotec lord, Patricio uh, Lopez, he had been a translator for the courts where he had access to pictorial records and in working for years with indigenous people as a translator had acquired the experience to read such documents. It's interesting that individuals like him are also making historical arguments and historical claims. Um, in his case, in his annotated uh, inventory of the collection, he is very clear to point out that only individuals with direct experience with sources can interpret the records. Well, Alex, we've taken up a lot of your time today. Before we wrap up, I have one last question for you. What are you working on now? Oh, well, uh, yes. Um, I'm working on a couple of different things. Um, I've started a new project uh, on the history of sound that examines the way that sound influenced everyday life during the colonial period in central Mexico. I'm thinking specifically about voices uh, beyond speech, but rather the different types of sounds that individuals can produce from screams to laughter to crying to murmur. These are all elements that are recorded in the historical record. One of the things that I wish to do with this particular project is to think about how sound influenced subversive behavior, uh, normative behavior in our everyday or in people's everyday lives in the past, but how we tend to perceive the past almost as being mute. We, we don't or can't or think that we can't listen to how different sonic elements played such an important role in organizing society. Another chapter I'm thinking about uh, analyzing the role of bells uh, as elements of alarm, as elements of ritual, as elements of bringing people together. Another chapter will examine uh, the rise of the guitar in the 18th century as a subversive musical instrument 
that opened the way for lewd dances and satirical lyrics. Um, and I'm also going to examine the relationship between animals and animal sounds and how individuals interpret the supernatural and the natural. Um, aside from that, I'm working on two other small projects. One is a pedagogical contribution that I'll be making for an edited volume uh, that uh, from uh, this comes out of the research on uh, the chapter on materials in the book. Uh, I replicate the ink recipes that I examine, the iron gall ink recipes that I examine in the chapter, and I bring that research into the classroom where my students and I go into a chemistry laboratory and reproduce iron gall ink, and we make uh, quills out of goose feathers, and then we take all of these elements and we... Uh, engage in a scriptorium workshop writing with rack paper that is the type of paper that was used during the early modern period. So I'm writing about that experience for uh, an edited volume on teaching with objects. And I'm also working on a piece that analyzes a book uh, it's a manual for confessors that's published in the convent of Santiago de Tlatelolco. It's a Franciscan convent uh, outside of uh, the center of Mexico that is the center of intellectual activity in the New World for the 16th century. And one of the principal locations where works of ethnography are being produced. TCU Special Collections acquired a rare copy of this book that is annotated uh, and that can be traced over time through several Franciscan convents in central Mexico. And I'm writing a little piece on that about uh, the book's life and uh, how how to think about intellectual, indigenous intellectual activity in Mexico during the 16th century. Alex, those all sound like very interesting and important projects. I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Take care. Thank you, Annabelle. It was a pleasure to be with you. <laughs>